Amen. Thank you, choir. You know, the story behind that hymn, we talk about it often, but it's worth repeating. Horatio Spafford, what a great name. Horatio Spafford was a, a businessman in Chicago and has made frequent trips across the Atlantic doing business in England, and he uh, sent his wife and his daughters uh, ahead of him. He got de delayed on business in Chicago, and his wife and daughter's ship sank, and, and they all died. And on the way to the funeral, he wrote that song. He wrote that song because the gospel that our sins are nailed to the cross is enough. The gospel says that life is, is not only in this life only, but our ultimate hope is in the life to come. One day the trump will resound and the clouds will part and the Lord will descend and make all things new once and for all. Therefore, we must rely on the gospel and take the long view. And those are two of the points in the sermon today. So you got a little preview. Thank you for Aaron uh, for leading us in that. And my wife joined the choir, I think, so she wouldn't have to sit through Wednesday night teaching anymore, but uh, I'm glad she's up there. Just kidding. She, she told me not to say that uh, on Wednesday, and I did anyway. So, uh, you know, this is a, a strange time in our country in so many ways. And, um, you know, COVID just kind of really exposed what was, I think, underneath the surface in a lot of ways, and that's true in politics. It's also true in churches. We've seen that, that churches are struggling. A lot of churches have been shaped far more by the culture around them than they've been shaped by the Holy Spirit. And when many people stop going to church, they realize that they didn't miss it. They didn't miss being part of the body of Christ. So now, today, there are tons of programs and literature that are being produced simply aimed at just helping churches to stay open. A quick search on the internet for resilient church turns up tons of options. Uh, Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington uh, offers a two-year cohort program for church leaders called the Resilient Church Initiative. A few years ago, the United Methodist Church launched a, a, a program called Rethink. Didn't you help with Rethink, Jamie, the marketing of Rethink? Really cool stuff. And out of that has now come the Resilient Church Academy. They have a whole program, a three-week online intensive course. The Billy Graham Center at Wheaton has a new initiative called Resilient Church Leadership with free seminars and newsletters. And at the bottom of the website, they have the suicide hotline because it's been a very difficult season for a lot of pastors. There's countless books, blogs, articles that have been written recently about what it takes to keep going in a world that has changed in significant ways over the last you know, three to five years or so. Resilient means able to withstand or to recover quickly from difficult conditions. What does it take for a church to be resilient? What does it take for a church to be able to stand firm in the midst of a storm of hyper-individualism that our culture is so obsessed with? What does it take for a church to stand in a culture where truth is relative, you have your truth and I'll have mine and, and my truth is better. And <laughs> What do we do in a culture where digital consumption is out of control and screen time is something that we parents have to worry about all the time? I think what we see in our text for today in 1 Corinthians chapter three is biblical 
vital wisdom for how to go forward and truly be a resilient church. Considering how the Apostle Paul describes it to the church in Corinth, we must consider the whole structure from the ground up, the foundation, the support beams. Have you seen the pictures of this room when it was being built? These massive beams that were the, the first skeletal structure for this room that we sit in today, 1955, 1954 when they began construction. The whole structure, the roof, the walls, the windows, every part of this building that we call the church. And remember, when we talk about the church, it's not the physical structure, it's you, the people, the congregation are the church. But Paul uses this metaphor often of a building for what the church, the people, ought to be. And we're gonna see that in our text for today. We're talking about, again, local expressions of the, the universal body of Christ. The, the capital C church, I was talking to Lauren about where she goes to church uh, normally and that we are partners with them, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ in the capital C church, but Woodmont Baptist is a little C church, a local expression of the body of Christ. So we're calling uh, the outline for today, what are we building? What are we building? Hopefully it's the resilient church. So let's stand in honor of God's word today as I read our text for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, you architects are gonna love this, Gary Logan, you guys are gonna, this is great. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. You know, I'm not a very handy person. Uh, I'm thankful for people like Breck and, and others who are very handy. Uh, obviously, Ron Landis, our facility director, and Calvin, who's done so many things around here. Uh, 
Cliff, you know, you're very, very handy. Uh, but once a year, I love to take out the big, I think it's 22 ounces framing hammer. Is that right? Is it 20? It's a big hammer. Ron got me one. He actually bought me my own framing hammer, and I use it exactly one day a year on the Habitat build where I get to put on a hard hat and pretend like I know what I'm doing when I don't, but I really enjoy uh, listening to these guys that know what they're doing, tell me what to do, and to swing the hammer, and, and my hands always hurt, but it's a great day. I invite you to, to be a part of it. It's an awesome organization. Woodmont is proud to have been supporting Habitat many, many years. And you might think that these homes that are built by people like me are subpar because they're built with mostly volunteer labor. But I remember one of the, the building experts from Habitat who explained to us that like when a, a big storm comes through a neighborhood or through a, a tornado comes through an area of town, that the Habitat houses actually fare better than the, the houses built by professionals because they overbuild them. They, they have to, when volunteers are building them, they, they use, you know, galvanized hurricane brackets. Is that what they're called? Some kind of hurricane tie that you, you tie the, 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 the wood with together. And they, they overbuild these houses because they're, they're made with volunteers. And, and it makes sense, right? It makes sense that they would go to these links because it's not loving to slap something together and give it to, you know, a refugee family or an immigrant family that is desperate for a home. It's not loving. We want to give them a quality, lasting product, right? Because we, we care about them because God cares about them. And, and the, the whole structure is tied to the foundation. Uh, they, they, they had this massive drill. I remember Amy Gellick using the drill and, and drilling these deep holes for these big bolts that go all the way into a solid concrete foundation that makes sure the whole structure is rooted and, and bolted down tightly to that foundation. And it's, it's secure, it's not going anywhere. If we really love God, if we care about what kind of church we're building, then, then we must take seriously what kind of quality of church that we're building. We must consider what kind of thing we're doing here. It's not loving to slap something together and say to God, look what we've put together for you. We must consider carefully what are we building. And whether you come out and help us build a Habitat house or not, if you are a member of a church, you are on the construction crew. Let me be clear. Now, you may be the guy who's just, you know, lounging around all the time and not pulling his weight, but you're on the crew. At the end of verse 9 here in chapter 3, Paul makes this metaphor clear with the, the Corinthian church. He says, you are God's building. You are God's field and you are God's building. And any building must have a foundation. What is the church in Corinth built on? Was it built on the, the guy who planted the church? Is it built on Paul, on Paul? No. Is it built on Apollos? No. Another traveling evangelist? Is it built on Peter? Jesus said, on this rock, I'll build my church. No, it's not built on any person or any physical leader. You know, Paul says in verse 10 that he was simply the, the master builder. If that strikes you as a little arrogant, remember what he said before he says he's the master builder, according to the grace of God given to me. It wasn't me. It was only by God's grace that Paul was like this expert architect engineer 
who helped uh, build this foundation. He laid this foundation. What was that foundation? It was the same foundation that every church must necessarily be built upon, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's point number one on your outline. The church is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 makes that clear. No one can lay a foundation for a church other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. We sang it earlier. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. What does that mean? It means that the heart of the Christian faith is the good news of Jesus, of, of how God forged this way to make uh, what's wrong with this world and what's wrong with us right. That, that he made a perfect way through the 100% God, 100% man, divine son of God in order to fix what's wrong with our world, to deal with the sin problem that we could not deal with ourselves. I try to make sure that I explain the gospel every time I preach, because it's central to the Christian faith, therefore it must be central to our preaching and teaching. The gospel should inform everything we do. I know Aaron thinks about the gospel in the songs that he selects. The gospel should inform the curriculum that we teach. The gospel should inform the way we do missions. The gospel informs how we baptize and how we take communion and so on. The, the gospel is what Paul's talking about, the good news of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter three, I love this passage, in Philippians three, eight through 11, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, it's a gift that depends on works, no, depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that should blow our minds, and may share his sufferings. Wait, what? I don't wanna suffer. Paul says, we get to suffer. We get to suffer like Jesus, it's awesome. <laughs> we get to be persecuted. What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, right? Happy are those who are persecuted. Paul says, it's great, <laughs> it's the best way to live. Becoming like Jesus in his death. I don't wanna die. Paul says, no, it's the best way to live. Dying to yourself is thriving that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We're gonna live forever. We're gonna reign with Christ in the new creation forever. When Mark Dever, a pastor, he's a Baptist pastor in Washington, D.C., when he explains the gospel, he starts with what the gospel is not. The gospel is not the news that we're okay. It's not even the news that God is love. It's true, but it's not the gospel. It's not the news that Jesus wants to be our friend. Again, true, but not the gospel. It's not the news that he has a wonderful plan or purpose for our lives. True, but not the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sacrificial substitute for sinners 
and rose again, making a way for us to be reconciled to God. Sometimes the gospel gets presented as the benefits of the gospel. Those benefits get presented as the gospel itself. Dever says, fundamentally, we don't need just joy or peace or forgiveness. All those things are great, and we get those through the gospel. Purpose, awesome, but not what we really need. Dever says, we need God himself. I love that. The gospel is that we get God. The gospel is that we get Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians 8, in order that I may gain Christ. Christ is ours because of the gospel. That's truly good news. Tim Keller, I love this, I say it all the time, he says the gospel is that we are more broken, more desperately flawed, more messed up than we ever dreamed while at the same time we're more accepted, we're more known, and we're more loved than we ever dared to dream by the holy God of the universe. That's good news, it's good news, and it's the best news, and it's the foundation upon which we as Christians and as a Christian church stand and build. So Paul, the architect engineer, has laid this the only foundation possible for a church, just as Roy Green and, and Norman O'Neill and Charles McGlon and those guys that were friends with your granddad, Ed, those guys laid that foundation for Woodmont Baptist Church back in the summer of 1941. And when this sanctuary was built in 1955, they and other charter members laid the, the cornerstone right outside that south entrance. Here's a picture of it. It says, A.D. 1955, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then it says Ephesians 2.20. You know what Ephesians 2.20 says? You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles, that means messengers and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets both preached the message of good news of the Messiah, and that good news remains our firm foundation. So how then are we as the construction crew to build upon it? What's our job? How are we to build this church? Throw it together as fast as we can so we can enjoy it now? No, we're told to build with the long game in mind. That's point number two, build with the long game in mind. I'm sure when Dr. Alan West, first pastor of this church, helped to lay that cornerstone on this beautiful building, he prayed that future generations would enjoy worshiping the Lord here in this sacred space, hundreds of years into the future, I hope. They didn't use flimsy building materials, did they? They used stone. They used brick. That's a whole other story about the brick. Ask Ed Fulcher or somebody if you want to know the story. It's pretty amazing. A resilient church must be built with the long game in mind. I love the saying, we're all just interim. I'm just the interim pastor. I, I, I am. I'm still, I'm just getting it ready for the next guy or girl who comes. I'm just taking care of the place for the time that I have with it. I hope it's a long time. I don't know. However long God has for me. I want to leave this place a healthier, stronger, better built church than when I got here. 
And it's not just my job, it's yours too. If you're a member of a church, you are on the crew. We work together. We're all just getting our church ready for those 11 babies that were born last year that they're going to take it over someday. We had a deacon who uh, said, it's time for me to move on. I talked to him on the phone this week. He said, there's a younger group that's, that's coming up in the, in the deacon board, and they're great. And he said, it's time to, to pass the reins. I'm so grateful for a multi-generational church where we have young and old serving together. It's a beautiful thing to work together in harmony. But we're all just interim. We're all just getting the place ready for who comes after us. That's a healthy way to think. That's what Paul's saying in verses 12 to 13. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, verses, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire's coming. The fire's coming. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. Bill Sherman tells the story about getting a phone call, what was it, the middle of the night, that the chapel was on fire, and, and church members ran with pails of water, working alongside of the fire department, put out the fire here. They, they worked tirelessly to scrub ash and soot off of the carpets throughout the church building to get ready for worship the next week. Our church has been through fire, literal and figurative. When we build the church, you can either use fireproof materials or you can use combustible material. Gold, silver, precious stones, they're costly, but they last. Wood, hay, and straw are cheap and they're quickly consumed when the fire comes. If the quality of the foundation is the infinitely valuable gospel, then the rest of the structure ought to be worthy of that foundation. Notice that verse 13 says, what sort of work each has done. The resilient church is about quality, not quantity. I think we lost that in the church growth movement of the 50s and 60s. Valerie Williams, who's downstairs directing our TV broadcast, she's our newly elected deacon chair, praise God, and she brought me a brochure from a little country church. Oh, she's now she's right here. Oh, good. You came upstairs for once. They let you out. Good. I'm, I'm so glad. Uh, she brought me a brochure from a little country church. It's a tiny church down the road from their house out in Lebanon, and they were celebrating their 200th anniversary. Their 200th anniversary. That is a resilient church. It's not about size, which leads us to consider our priorities. When we take the long view, when we have eternity stamped on our eyeballs, as Jonathan Edwards so eloquently put it, we see things differently. We have an eternal perspective. So point A on your outline is that we see that what matters in this life differently. We know that earthly treasure is not eternal treasure. We know that we can't take it with us. We also know that our bodies are, are going to break down and return to dust eventually. So we cheerfully, gladly give of our time, our talent, and our treasure to build the kind of church that can withstand the onslaught of time, weather, culture, and the attacks of the evil one. As Jim Elliott, the, the martyred missionary, uh, famously put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The long game also means that we value what matters in the next life differently too. That's point B. How do you want to enter into glory? You know, I've had the great privilege of being with many saints in our church as they've made that sacred transition from this life to the next. And the ones who do so with peace and confident hope are the ones who have built well who have built their lives on the firm foundation of the gospel and God's word and God's love. They enter into their rest with the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what verse 14 is about. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But for those Christians who've built poorly, it's a different story. Yes, they're saved, they, they still are, are justified before God, but it's by the skin of their teeth. Look at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. If you're really saved, how do you want to live then? The way to really thrive and flourish is to build well. That basically means, again, the person just gets in by the skin of their teeth. The Bible's clear. We're all going to stand before the Lord and give an account for how we stewarded the days that were given to us. I don't want God to say to me, man, you missed so many good building opportunities that were there before you. Let's build with the long game in mind. And what kind of building has precious stones in it, has gold and, and silver on it? It's the temple of God the place where God himself lives and dwells. A church is a church only if it's built on the gospel and only if the Holy Spirit is in it. Verse 16 is clear. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? It's, it's y'all, plural. God dwells in y'all. The resilient church lasts because it's built set apart and, and holy and special to God. That's point number three. Set apart and special to God. The new covenant people of God are like the old covenant people of God and that they are a precious possession for God's own self. Exodus 19 says, his treasured possession among all peoples, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And God defends his church, his bride, just like I defend my bride. Verse 17 says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Anyone who desecrates, anyone who profanes, anyone who attempts to tear down God's church does so at their own peril. Finally, the last verses of chapter three, we see how a resilient church is not built with clever schemes it's not built with brilliant corporate strategies. It's only built supernaturally. That's point number four, supernaturally. Remember these Corinthians that Paul is writing to are, are living in a Greek culture that's filled with people who are obsessed with being clever and winning arguments and knowing a lot of stuff that makes them sophisticated and makes them feel superior to the barbarians around them. And apparently that kind of toxic anti-gospel culture had seeped into the Corinthian church as well. Paul's dealing with arrogance and pride through a lot of this letter. 
And so Paul keeps reiterating, look, the real gospel, the the real message of the cross, it, it just seems like foolishness to this world. And the things that this world thinks are so clever are just foolishness to God. In verses 19 and 20, Paul quotes from Job and Psalms, books of Hebrew, wisdom, literature, to make that point. And then in verse 21, he says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Paul's saying, look, you now belong to something far bigger than this world. You belong to God, not to me, not to Apollos or Peter, not to any religious leader. And everything that God does is somehow for your good and for his glory. I've heard a phrase recently that I really like, big God theology. Let's have big God theology, supernatural God. It basically means that God is the center of all reality. He's completely and totally in charge. Or as Paul told the crowd in in Athens in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. John Piper, who's a longtime teacher and preacher of big God theology, says that the roots of big God theology in America actually go back to African-American theology. It goes back, it's, it's actually a product of, of Africans who were brought here against their will and sold into bondage. He quotes the first African-American writer to ever be published in the United States, a guy named Jasper, Jupiter Hammond. Jupiter Hammond, great name. He lived in Lloyd Harbor, New York. He was never emancipated in his lifetime. But he was a strong believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ and he spoke beautifully at a meeting of the African Society in New York in 1786. Hammond encouraged his African brothers and sisters to do whatever it took to learn how to read so that they could dive into the Bible for themselves. He then said, therein, in God's word, we may may learn what God is, that he made all things by the power of his word, that he made all things for his own glory and not for our glory, that he is over all and above all his creatures and more above them than we can think or conceive, that they can do nothing without him, that he upholds them all and will overrule all things for his own glory. That is big God theology that comes out of broken and terribly unjust and evil circumstances. We would do well to remember that while we get to participate in this thing called the church, the church is ultimately in God's hands. Yes, we get to build it up. Yes, we get to edify the body as we have opportunity to. But in the end, the church will prevail, not because we are such good builders, but because Jesus Christ is her head, and therefore not even the gates of hell can stand against her. So what are we building here on this corner? This church has been here for 80 years. What kind of church is Woodmont Baptist going to be for the next 80 years? My prayer is that we would always build on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, boldly fulfilling the whole gospel, the real gospel. And I pray that we can get our own preferences and priorities out of the way so that we can build for those who come after us 
sacrificially taking the time to build our church with precious materials that last? And then will we take seriously the call to be holy and set apart from the, from the world? Most churches don't talk about sin very often. It's not fun to talk about sin. But if we're going to be holy, we need to address it. We're different from the world in order to make a difference in the world. Finally, are we going to embrace the big God of the Bible, a supernatural God, through prayer, through, through Holy Spirit movement, the God who's totally in control and totally good? If we do those things, I do believe that Woodmont Baptist Church will be a resilient church. Let's be honest, Woodmont Church has been a resilient church. It has stood in the face of many, many tests of fires, both literal and figuratively. I'm grateful for Dr. Sherman and for other saints who have led this church through the fires. If we do these things again, no culture shift, no pandemic, no political strife, no divisions, no schemes of the enemy whatsoever can stand against a resilient church. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word gives us instructions for how to build our church. God, I pray that we would be obedient to your word and build a resilient church. God, we thank you for the gospel, for the firm foundation we have that we can always know that whatever happens, that this church is built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that, that we get to be the, the place where you dwell, your holy temple. God, I pray that we can deal honestly with sin, that we can strive for personal holiness and corporate holiness, that our leaders would, would model what it looks like to fight against sin and, and by your grace and by your Holy Spirit to win and to overcome sin. God, I thank you that you give us an opportunity to follow in the footsteps of those who came before us and to build something even greater for those who come after us. God, I pray that our church would not only withstand the next 80 years, but the next 180 years. Unless you return, God, and, and, and fix everything once and for all, I pray that you would continue to make Woodmont Baptist Church the kind of church where people find hope and healing, true hope and true healing, based in your word and because of your Holy Spirit moving, not because of, of great preaching, not because of great music, not because of great programs or, or, or Bible teachers, but only because of your grace and your glory. God, we pray that you would continue to humble us as you give us an eternal perspective of the long view Help us not to just seek what we want now in the short term, but to remember that what we're building is, is beyond ourselves. God, I'm reminded of, of these cathedrals that, that Ed was telling me about in, in Barcelona that have been being built for hundreds of years, and that those who built died knowing that they wouldn't see the finished product. God, remind us that we're all just interim, and that we're all just stewarding what you've given to us for this season. I pray that you would grant us an eternal perspective so that we can be the healthy, strong church that you desire for us to be, where lives are changed, where people go from death to life, where people are discipled, where people love one another and are fellowshipping together, where they are discipling one another and growing in grace together through your word and through instruction and through teaching that's biblical and thorough. 
God, we, we need you. We can't do this on our own. So we pray that you would come and fill us with your spirit. May we be more and more a spirit-filled church and a spirit-filled congregation where your spirit rules and reigns and leads us where you want us to go. We pray all these things in the high and the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our firm foundation. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now. Uh, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by the, the free gift of grace that is uh, ours through the cross of Christ and through the resurrection from the dead, I invite you to come right now and talk to me about what that looks like. Maybe you just want to pray with somebody. Maybe uh, you want to come pray at the altar by yourself. Whatever it is that you want to do during this time as the Spirit leads, I pray that you'll be obedient. Maybe you've never been baptized by immersion. Uh, we're going to have uh, people who are baptized following Christ's example of going from death to life uh, through baptism. Whatever it is that you need to do, maybe you want to join Woodmont and you say, I'm in. Uh, I want to be a member of Woodmont. I want to be part of what's going on here. Whatever it is that the Lord leads, will you stand as we sing our hymn of response? Sing it from your heart to God's heart. Amen.